Hello again, everybody. This is Adashina Koiki, and you're listening to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. This is episode number 23, and we promise you that this episode will be very Jordan-esque with its greatness. But before we talk about who is going to join us for episode number 23, we do want to spend some time and say that our thoughts and prayers and condolences go out to those in Paris and in Beirut and in Kenya as well for the tragedies and senseless violence uh, that occurred in those places in uh, the past week. Uh, We saw so many sports teams and players and arenas uh, pay tribute uh, to Paris and to those in France who were affected and also lost their lives uh, in those senseless attacks and violence that went on there uh, this past week. You saw uh, so many sports arenas when the lights were down, uh, tint their lights to the iconic blue, white, and red uh, to honor uh, France. And one story really quick, uh, we went to the Patriots-Giants game on Sunday, the NFL game between the Patriots and New York Giants. And after the game, we went into the locker room, uh, talked with a couple of Patriots players, and on our way out of the locker room, we saw two posters, banners that were affixed on the inside of the Patriots locker room door. One of those posters was the French flag, the blue, white, and red bars, uh, vertical bars. And the other right next to it was the Eiffel Tower peace sign that has become very popular uh, on the Internet. So we definitely want to give kudos to the New England Patriots for keeping uh, the people of Paris in mind, uh, even though they were playing a NFL game uh, on that day as well, and I'm sure many other teams have done something similar to that as well. So once again, our thoughts and prayers and condolences to those in Paris, to those in Kenya, and to those in Beirut. And uh, my apologies if I don't make this segue too smooth from that to our show, but uh, we do have a show uh, for you, episode number 23, and our feature interview is with an amazing man and it's an amazing interview dr harry edwards the renowned sociologist joining us and we talk about sport and its role in society and stemming from the events and occurrences in the past couple of weeks um, at the university of missouri columbia of course there had been racial tension building on that campus for years and it came to a head just a couple of weeks ago uh, minority students having to be subjected to racial slurs and other racist acts uh, on the campus and uh, some of those students uh, protested uh, the hashtag concerned student 1950 uh, and one of those students uh, decided to go on a hunger strike and was going to continue to Uh, fast until the school president, Tim Wolf, uh, stepped down. The University of Missouri football team joined in and took its stance, and they said as a collective group that it will not practice or play until the school president, Tim Wolf, stepped down. Uh, The football team was backed by the head coach, uh, Gary Pinkle, as well, and uh, just a few days after the Missouri football team uh, took its stance, Tim Wolf and another high-ranking administrator uh, did step down. So we talk with Dr. Harry Edwards about that situation and how that momentum 
of being able to highlight the ills that was going on at the University of Missouri, how to continue that momentum and not let that peter out. Um, and we also talk about no final victories. And that is a line that Dr. Harry Edwards said a few times during this interview. That is the title of our podcast. And you'll know what he means by no final victories, regardless of whether you're the Missouri football team, regardless of whether you're Jesse Owens, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, uh, in highlighting America's societal ills, especially when it comes to race relations and relations, uh, in terms of women's rights um, and other factors as well, that there are, quote, unquote, no final victories. And you'll know what Dr. Harry Edwards uh, is talking about when you listen uh, to this interview. So that is our featured interview. And our second guest on episode number 23 is one of the great hockey players in America today. Brianna Decker, member of the United States women's national team on the hockey side. She joins us. She's also a member of the Boston Pride, one of the four teams in the new National Women's Hockey League, which is gotten underway. It's an inaugural season starting last month in October, and we caught up with Brianna Decker, a member of the Boston Pride and one of the great players um, in hockey today and a great player at the University of Wisconsin. So we caught up with her after one of her games, which occurred here uh, in New York City. So we have an interview with Brianna Decker. That is second. Our feature interview with Dr. Harry Edwards comes in a couple of seconds. So once again, enjoy episode number 23. And as always, we will see you at the very end of the show. Joining us right now to talk more about sports and society is Dr. Harry Edwards, sociologist and professor emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. First of all, doctor, thank you uh, so very much for joining us. Uh, We know what the University of Missouri football team did and its stance with uh, head coach Gary Pinkle as well. How do members of the team or the football team as a whole continue to build on the momentum of calling to action what had been what has been going on at the University of Missouri and not having this peter out into an isolated incident? Well, I think that the um, hello. Yes, I'm here. Okay, I think that the basic uh, challenge is to make sure that things uh, are not allowed to revert um, to the status quo ante. Um, This situation is one that is fraught with um, retrenchment uh, potentialities, uh, beginning with the head coach's uh, statement about why he supported his athletes. Uh, He said he supported his athletes because a young man's life was at stake. Um, that's a pretty uh, final and definitive uh, statement because as soon as the uh, young man came off of the fast, uh, then that situation was resolved. I'd have been much more impressed with the head coach's support of his black athletes if he had said, I support them because they are right. And then uh, following up on that, there would have been uh, the necessity of some statement concerning what it would take and what kind of commitment and involvement um, it would take 
to correct the situation that generated the black athletes' revolt uh, to begin with. But once he says that I am supporting the athletes because the young man's life was at stake, that's a statement that he could have made when the young graduate student first said, I'm going to fast. But he didn't. He did it after the athletes rebelled and uh, then came out with the statement that he supported them because um, of this uh, fasting. Well, that's a pretty final uh, situation that brings everything to a close because the, his basic concern, the young man's life being at stake, was now resolved. So I guess the thing is we move on. The reality is that nothing has been resolved in terms of the overall situation that generated his athlete's involvement to begin with. And until those issues are, in fact, um, dealt with, not just in terms of uh, proposals and conversations and new appointments, but in terms of corrective action, then I think that the athletes are still potentially in the mix as far as uh, any kind of political action is concerned. So uh, there's a great deal of work to be done. How much the athletes will, would be directly involved, I think, is a, ma is a matter of their consciousness. But I think that uh, the constant pressure uh, toward retrenchment, the uh, return to the status quo ante, is always great in these situations, uh, in these institutions. And unless you're very, very conscious of the dynamics of what is happening, you will end up right back where you were. And people will be saying uh, five years from now, geez, after all people went through, here we are right back in the same situation. It was something to watch, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I almost thought of Occupy Wall Street in a way, where there was that movement, and then there was eventually uh, retrenchment, and things, to me at least, almost went back and did go back uh, to the status quo after that. So you believe that the uh, coach's statement, Coach Pinkle's statement, was more hollow and reactive than anything else. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Because if he was concerned about the young man's life, he came out and made that statement yeah. uh, when he first declared that he was going on a, a hunger strike. Uh, the reality is that what generated all of this action uh, so suddenly was the fact that uh, you had these uh, black uh, football players come out and say, we will not practice and we will not play until the goals and demands of the student groups are met. And at that point, you had millions of dollars involved. You had the reputation of the athletic program involved, and the football program in particular, which reverberates to uh, recruitment capabilities and so forth. And on top of that, you had, uh, at one level, the very real uh, situation where uh, nobody's going to come to see anybody play but the athletes. And if uh, a number of your star athletes and uh, the overwhelming majority of your black athletes aren't playing, uh, you, I don't, there's a, that's a no-win situation for the department. So, of course, he uh, reacted. Of course, he stepped up and said, I'm supporting my athletes. Uh, he really didn't have an option in that regard. Uh, because they're the ones who ultimately uh, have to play. But I think that the way that he did it was um, uh, to put final closure 
to their involvement at the point that the young man uh, was no longer fasting. And I don't think that that was the point of the, uh, or the only point of the athlete's uh, protest effort. I think that they want the circumstances generated on that campus over years uh, to be resolved and, and, um, and corrected. Uh, Dr. Harry Edwards, once again, joining us. And sports, uh, maybe other than politics in America at least, is probably the most polarizing topic in genre, uh, in the sense not just of my team versus your team uh, and team colors, but there are so many people, millions of fans, uh, millions of people that are enthusiasts and fans of sports while there's so many other people that have either an enmity or apathy uh, for sports because they either just don't know the nuances uh, of the game or they perceive the enthusiasm for sports as maybe more uh, tribalism uh, instead of just being enthusiastic for your hometown team or whatever team you are. Uh, Why is this more than just, uh, quote, because sports, why is it more than just oh, this is just sports? So this is why it's uh, uh, this is why this issue at the University of Missouri went to another level. Why is this more than just a sports issue for those that see the Missouri football team and maybe have a reaction to it because it's just sports? Well, because you know, it, with in every society, sports is invested uh, in the modern world uh, with a. Deep, most deeply felt uh, values and sentiments, ideological values and sentiments in particular, uh, of that society. So in American society, it is presumed that the team that works hardest, that's most competitive, disciplined, uh, that uh, uh, cares about each other and so forth, all of these character uh, um, types of um, uh, prescriptions uh, that those will lead to victory in the same sense that it is presumed that the student who works hardest, who's most disciplined, who's most focused, uh, you know, who is honest and so forth and so on, will uh, be a, become a good student, will graduate and get a good job. Uh, those uh, are basically ideological sentiments uh, tied uh, to uh, the institutional character and structure of American society. Sports are invested uh, with those. This is why during the Cold War era in particular, when the United States and the Soviet Union were battling in Olympic track and field events, it was presumed that the uh, team that got the most medals, uh, the most gold medals, bronze and silvers, uh, somehow also uh, demonstrated its uh, ideological uh, uh, superiority. And so that's where that investment comes. Uh, it's a uh, sport in, in every modern society is virtually a sacred, um, a secular religion. Uh, I mean, down to, uh, you know, going to events on weekends and Sundays and uh, having uh, stadiums and facilities that match anything ever built to the greater glory of God in the Middle Ages with these cathedrals and everything, uh, and, and much more expensive to build. So when you look at it like that, you begin to understand how it can generate these millions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars, uh, when you talk about the NFL and when you talk about collegiate uh, football at the elite level. So all of this becomes critical. This is not the toy department of human affairs uh, 
where, uh, you know, you have developed young men and grown men in some instances playing children's games made more difficult and competitive and risky. Uh, you're talking about something that goes to the very core of what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to believe in as a society. That's why we find so many of our, quote, heroes in sports and why we are so disappointed when they turn out to be just guys who are good at doing a particular sport, but in some instances are flat-out criminals in other regards. So uh, we're disappointed when that happens because it goes against the grain of what they're supposed to be representing and what they're supposed to be projecting uh, with their uh, sports success as far as the ideological sentiments that drive our participation and guide our participation in the broader society. So sport is not and has never been the Tar Department of Human Affairs uh, in the modern world. It is as serious, it is, it is as uh, invested uh, with our chief values and sentiments as uh, capitalist economics are in, in American society. Uh, we know about the great feats of athletes like Tommy Smith and John Carlos, uh, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and what they did. And at the same time, on the, on the field as well as what they did to bring into light society's ills. And American society's ills. And that was during the time of the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. And even throwing a Rene Richards for later after the Civil Rights Movement for LGBT as well. Uh, that was during a time when there was so much discord with the discourse uh, in, uh, in America. Now, it almost seems to me that there is as much discord with the discourse with so many different topics, with politics, with women's rights, uh, with uh, race relations, with science, than at any point that I can remember. Now, I'm 33 years old, uh, full disclosure. So it almost seems as if there's, so, there's more discord with the discourse than at any time in my lifetime. Could it be cyclical, where just like in the six foot 50s and 60s, where athletes really used their platform to bring into light society's ills, that it could be cyclical given the tension and discord with the discourse in today's society in 2015 and going forward? Well, we have to understand that every generation ends up fighting its battles where you have a consistently systematic oppressive structure that are impacting people's lives. So you can go back to the collapse of Reconstruction in American society and the turn of the 20th century, and Jack Johnson arose, and during that period of time you had uh, also um, Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis who uh, gained their athletic prowess mostly in the national arena uh, because the domestic arena was so segregated and so uh, uh, totally oppressive. Uh, so you found Jack Johnson winning and, and a world heavyweight championship. You found Joe Lewis uh, fighting Max Smelling, winning a world heavyweight uh, uh, championship uh, and, and, and draw, getting a lot of respect for his efforts in that international uh, uh, theater. The same with Jesse Owens and the four gold medals at the Nazi Olympics. Uh, all of them, when they came home, they were either flat out oppressed and arrested uh, like um, uh, Jack Johnson, or they ended up like Jesse Owens, 
coming home from the Nazi Olympics riding in the back of the bus, going to hotels where he was asked to enter through the back door, couldn't get a job, and so forth and so on. Joe Lewis ended up uh, being chased around the country by the um, uh, IRS and so forth. So th their, their standard standing in the country was less than their status, than the status and respect that they had outside of the country. In the post-World War II era, and the rise of the Cold War and the struggle between East and West for hearts and minds in resource, resource and labor-rich third world countries, most of which were, uh, were uh, populated by people of color, uh, there was an effort to desegregate America in American apartheid. And so you had Jackie Robinson, who all of a sudden began to get some print in this country for not just his athletic prowess, but what he was doing in terms of desegregation. The same with Larry Doby in the American uh, Baseball uh, uh, League. The same with um, uh, Marion Modley and Bill Willis at Cleveland and Kenny Washington and Woody Strode uh, at the L.A. Rams. Uh, the same with uh, Chuck Cooper and a number of athletes in the early 1950s who desegregated, uh, for all practical purposes, the NBA. Uh, so you had that struggle for access, not just the legitimacy that uh, Jack Johnson and Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens struggled for, but uh, the uh, access uh, issue was what Jackie Robinson was involved in. Then in the 1960s, uh, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Arthur Ashe, uh, going into the 1970s with Kurt Flood, most certainly, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, they struggled for dignity and respect. This generation is standing on the shoulders of those giants, and you could see it coming with the um, uh, hoodie photo that was sent out over the social media by LeBron James and the Miami Heat in the wake of Trayvon Martin's killing. Then you look at the Don Sterling situation when Steph Curry and that group at the Warriors said they were not going to play uh, against the Clippers and the Clippers player said that they may not play either if Donald Sterling is still the owner. Then you had, of course, uh, the um, shooting of Mike Brown and the uh, I Can't Breathe t-shirts coming out of the Eric Garner situation, the Black Lives Matter situ uh, uh, coming out of uh, the uh, shootings of uh, blacks by police officers. Uh, you had the Hands Up, Don't Shoot t-shirts that athletes were wearing. Uh, the five uh, um, St. Louis Rams football players who ran on the field. So all of that was building up to this thing at Missouri. And it's, it has a long history of it. Every generation ends up fighting its part of this battle. And there are no final victories. Jackie Robinson wasn't the final victory. Smith and Carlos wasn't the final victory. Uh, the uh, hoodie incident. Uh, with the Miami uh, Heat team was not a final victory. There are no final victories. And so as long as the situation is oppressive, athletes are going to respond. This is just the latest, and there will be more. I absolutely guarantee it because there are no final victories. And in the face of this continued effort to retrench, to return to the status quo ante uh, struggle going forward, is absolutely unavoidable and inevitable. How much of the no final victory sentiment, how much does 
all the money at stake with advertising, TV contracts, just all the money at stake. And maybe I'm uh, speaking more towards pro athletes who have the advertising uh, uh, money and revenue that they get. Um, Have we, how much of a factor is money at stake and having those uh, stances, how much of that plays a part in the no final victory sentiment? Well, it, 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 it's, it's absolutely, uh, absolutely a part of it. Uh, this whole thing that we're seeing at Missouri uh, is a struggle that involves who controls the power. Uh, this thing could mark a shift in the power relationships between athletes, collegiate athletes, and the people who are making all of the money uh, off of these athletes. Uh, some uh, ridiculous uh, sportscaster made the statement that the, the re- only reason that the Missouri football players were speaking up and involved in this situation at all is because they are a four and five football team. Uh, and if they were nine and oh, they never would have said anything. Again, this is an effort to uh, regain control of the definitional authority of the situation. The reality is if the Missouri, uh, football team were nine and zero rather than four and five. The only difference would be, rather than taking two days to get rid of the president and the chancellor, if four athletes in key positions had spoke up and said, "We agree with the protesters and we're not going to play a practice until uh, these two people are gone," they would have been gone uh, in fifteen minutes rather than forty-eight hours because of the money that's at stake. So the bigger the money is, the greater the struggle over uh, control and power in that situation once all parties are engaged in that struggle and athletes have entered that struggle. The money is so big at both the collegiate and the professional level that the uh, uh, stakes have expanded tremendously. And that's the big, if you will, black gorilla that they see in the room. Suppose it's not just that these athletes would boycott a game that they are concerned about, that they would boycott practice that they are concerned about. It's the fact that they might threaten to do so in the same sense that it's not that a country might uh, use the nuclear weapons that they have, it's that they might threaten to do so. And what kind of a situation does that put their uh, opponents in? So if athletes are in a position where they might threaten not to play in a national football, NCAA football championship, if they were in a position where they would threat, where they could threaten not to play in a Final Four uh, NCAA basketball championship playoff. That alone de- uh, denotes a shift in power. And with the money and stuff that's, a, that's, that's at stake, in the collegiate ranks alone, forget about the professional ranks, in the collegiate ranks, yes. uh, that's a lot to be concerned about. So they're going to have to do something uh, to, uh, to deal with this situation, to assuage the problems that these athletes are concerned about, and eventually they're going to have to do something about the concerns of the athletes themselves 
in terms of sports, as far as, especially as far as some type of reasonable compensation for the millions of dollars that they're putting into the coffers of these institutions, and many of them getting absolutely nothing in return, not even a college degree. So a lot of this stuff is on the table. It's unspoken of now. They're going to do everything they can to return things to the status quo, but the reality is that that genie is out of the bottle, and it's out there, and they have to be concerned about where does it go from here because that big black gorilla is sitting right up in the room and cannot any longer be ignored. It is fascinating to hear that, specifically talking about collegiate athletes in the revenue-making sports, not even professional athletes. It almost seems as if now, and maybe even before, but college athletes may realize it even more now, that that even though they look up to the professional athlete, and the professional athlete has influence with the way they play professionally and the money that they make as a professional, that the college athlete may, after all of this, wield and have more power than the professional athlete to uh, start the wheel of change in society, sports and society um, um, in America. So do you see now that college athletes are realizing even more how much power that they can wield and have in terms of really setting some real change and making sure that essentially the institutions and the NCAA does not make all this money off their back essentially in a slavery type of model? Do college athletes realize now that they have this power? Well, well, the, the, the professional athletes are all unionized. Yes. And last year, when the collegiate uh, a group tried to organize a college union, uh, the uh, National Labor Relations Board rejected it. Uh, the NC2A and a number of other interests um, uh, pushed for that rejection. And so what they're left with is, a, is no one who speaks uh, with authority for college athletes. So if a group of college athletes at Missouri says, we're not going to play because of this or that or the other, there's no union there that the NC2A or anybody else can go to and say, hey, what options do we have? What can we talk about to make this right? So they essentially have 139 or however many uh, uh, big-time Division I programs there are, most certainly all of the programs in the Big Five uh, power conferences are not uniformly rec- organized in any way. So any team of athletes can stand up and object to something, and when they do, it affects the entire uh, set of arrangements uh, that are in place. Because if a team of athletes decide we're not going to play as they did at Missouri, well, the team that they were supposed to play against is impacted. If they don't play and that game is forfeited, that could determine the uh, championship outcome for that conference. Uh, and so some team that has played every game and lost too many could wind up sitting at home while a team which benefited from a forfeit ends up playing in the championship. So this thing reverberates like a stone in the water. It sends out ripples everywhere. 
uh, arc, the athletes um, should be organized, should be organized not just in their interest, but in the interest of uh, the, uh, the game and even in the interest of the NC2A and the people who now control uh, the game. Because ultimately, they're in, they end up with uh, uh, however many big-time Division One football and basketball programs they are, all essentially wildcat operations because they will function based upon what's happening on their campus in their situation, and, but it reverberates throughout the entire uh, uh, system of relationships. So this thing is going to have to change. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point the big five power conferences just broke away from the NC2A in order to meet the needs of their athletes and protect their interests. And if the NC2A wants to continue to push the kinds of definitions of amateurism and so forth that they're doing it, that they're doing and have been doing for a hundred years, they need they will wind up doing it with Division Two and Division Three uh, institutions because I think that the way this was going now, the Big Five Power Conferences, beginning with the Big Five Power Conferences, they're not going to sit and watch this thing blow up in their faces while they're trying to go through uh, uh, the NC2A and some uh, other uh, third party uh, to try to get things right. So this uh, uh, could be a game changer, and it's going to be interesting to watch it play out. If there are no final victories, then the athletes organizing and the breaking away from the NCAA to meet the needs of these athletes, is that the best I guess, alternative. Well, that, that's just another stage in the evolution of the situation. Okay. Uh, th- th- these circumstances, you know, I said something in, in, in 1967 uh, after we uh, shut down a football program, uh, a football game at San Jose State, a game that was scheduled between San Jose State and what was then called Texas Western today, uh, the University of Texas at El Paso, the game was actually canceled. Uh, the first time in the history of the NC2A that a game at a Division One school had been canceled over racial turmoil on campus. And I made the statement at that time. People were saying, well, the, the school uh, canceled the game. They uh, desegregated the fraternities. They desegregated all of the housing. They got rid of programs where if you were black, you had to have a black roommate in the dormitory because they would not put black and white together. Uh, they got rid of all that kind of stuff. They got rid of the segregated majors uh, so that blacks could major in something other than uh, physical education, social welfare, and probation and parole, which were the jack co- uh, majors at uh, San Jose State. Uh, now, uh, now that this has been done, is this the end of it? And I said at the time, the circumstances that we're involved with are diverse and dynamic. The struggle, therefore has to be multifaceted and perpetual, and there are no final victories. Uh, as long as we are in a dynamic, ever-evolving, and diverse set of circumstances, the struggle to deal with those circumstances uh, is going to be perpetual, and there can be no final victories. Every generation fights its battles. Uh, we're fighting the same battles that Jack Johnson and Jesse Owens and uh, Joe Lewis was fighting. 
Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and Kenny Washington, that group, they fought the same battles that they were fighting. We're fighting the same battles that Jackie was fighting. It's just a different stage and phase of the battle. And as long as our circumstances are dynamic, as long as our challenges are diverse, the struggle will continue. This is just the latest. And they will not achieve a final victory either because the circumstances are ever-evolving. The challenges are ever-changing. When you mentioned that 1967 football game with San Jose State and the school now known as UTEP, while listening to you, I also thought about the 1995 basketball game at Rutgers where at halftime students came on the floor, sat on the floor, and protested uh, because, if I remember correctly, the university president uh, said that disadvantaged students lack the genetic and hereditary background to score well on college admissions tests. And I'm seeing what you're seeing, that it's the, cha- the challenges just continue. Okay, no matter the generation, uh, whether it be in the Jack Johnson era or be in the Civil Rights era or be University of Missouri or Rutgers in 1995, um, it, it just continues and continues. Um, Absolutely. Continues. Uh, and, and if you look at, if you look at sport, sport recapitulates society. And so if you today, uh, despite... The marches on the Selma Bridge, the marches to Washington, D.C., and all the rest over a Voting Rights Act, we today are fighting for voting rights. Yep. Yep. Uh, despite all of the struggle over women's equality and Roe v. Wade, today women are fighting still for uh, the uh, medical services uh, that are even on the books as legal. But that struggle continues. Education, we fought uh, through Brown versus Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas, and marches and sit-ins and everything else, uh, segregated education. But today, the overwhelming majority of students of color go to schools that are uh, either uh, uh, overwhelmingly uh, students of color or all students of color. And so uh, we have to understand that, you know, people are saying, well, geez, after all what Dr. King did, and we're still right back here uh, fighting for decent housing, hey, you know what? The struggle uh, is perpetual. There are no final victories. We will be fighting for uh, voting rights uh, when my grandson gets to be my age, and I'm 73. So... At the end of the day, this struggle goes on. The only thing that we have to keep in mind is that each generation has an obligation to fight the struggles of its era because if they don't, then the next generation not only has to fight their struggles, they end up having to fight the struggles that their fathers and mothers should have fought as well. That's the only sin. The other thing is that every generation has to speak out and speak up, whether you're an athlete, whether you're shining shoes, whether you're president of the United States. You have to speak out and you have to speak up about the issues of your era. 
it, it is a simple fact that silence has always been evil's greatest and most consistently dependable ally. You must speak up and you must take a stand. Dr. Harry Edwards, thank you so very much for this conversation and discussion. Uh, we definitely hope to catch up with you and speak with you, whether in an official interview capacity or uh, just in a more casual, leisure uh, type of sense. Uh, Dr. Edwards, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Boston Pride are one of four teams in the National Women's Hockey League. The league starting its inaugural season last week in terms of regular season games. Boston here in New York and delivering a 7-1 victory over the New York Riveters. And joining us right now at the intermission in the neutral zone is forward Brianna Decker of the Boston Pride. First of all, Brianna, thank you so very much for joining us. You scored the first goal of the game within a minute of the first period. That has to be one of the most perfect feelings that a hockey player has to have just getting on the board within on your first shift yeah you know I think that it, it, you always want to hop on a team early um, and so it was good for us to get off the bus get our bus legs out of out of the way and just hit, hit the ice running Speaking of the bus, um, the bus got here a little late, um, and the game had to be pushed back in terms of the start time. Uh, can you enlighten us on the um, adventures of that bus getting here to New York? You know, I guess it's just uh, typical traffic in New York, um, but also our bus arrived a little late to pick us up. But you know what? Um, you know what? you got to just persevere through those things, and it was a good test for us to just get off the bus and hop on the ice. There seems to be such a great chemistry already uh, with this team. I know you were teammates with some of the players in the Canadian Women's Hockey League um, as well, the Boston team uh, that's there. So it almost seems as if you are literally hitting the ice running in these first couple of games. Yeah, it's um, it's awesome to be comfortable with the girls um, on and off the ice. We all get along really well. And it's you know to have that chemistry off the ice, it's going to carry right on to um, the plane. And so, you know what, it's... I'm interested to see how the rest of the season goes. I think that um, we're going to continue to do well um, against the teams that we face. Once again, Brianna Decker joining us in the neutral zone. And could you feel the energy in this aviator sports complex building, the home opener for the New York Riveters and so many young fans, let alone fans of the game of hockey and women's hockey, even though you were the visiting team, could you feel the energy getting on the ice? Yeah, it was awesome. Obviously, all the fans were in the uh, in the New York uh, Riveters' favor, but um, you know what? It's just our job to try to you know make them sh out there, you know? <laughs> so uh, we just try to go out there and um, put the puck away. And, but you know what? It was awesome to have all the fans here. It's great support for women's hockey and um, regardless if they're for or against you, it's always nice to play in front of a crowd like that. Oh, so you take pride in shushing crowds, huh? <laughs> I do enjoy it, yes. <laughs> uh, so... Um Going into uh, this game and going into this season, you have now been a part of two pioneering women's hockey leagues. So uh, does that go through your mind when you're playing so many of these different games and playing in front of uh, young ladies who will and have aspired to be you? Just the importance of playing in both of these leagues, has it really hit you? Yeah, um, you know what, I think I noticed a big time when we played against uh, Buffalo last weekend for the home opener. Um, you know, so many fans there, so many young girls, and, you know, for them to know that they have something to play for is awesome. And, um, you know, a lot of us go to college, and a few of us make the national team, but for the girls who are done with college, it's nice that they have something else to strive for and, you know, dream for. Uh, speaking of the national team and the international teams, you being a part of the United States international team as well, how 
interesting is it and how fun is it to have the uh, team flags, um, at least for the New York Rivers, they have the team flags on the uh, shoulders, just uh, just reminding ourselves of so many, so much of the different talent that's all across the country and this world. So having the convergence of of the great players from all across the world being here has to be a whole lot of fun to be a part of. Yeah, definitely. You know, we continue to grow our sport every game. And, um, you know, regardless if you're putting on your the U.S. jersey or Boston jersey or Riveter jersey, you know what, you're playing and representing our country either way because we're playing on our, our home field, right? So um, it's a good opportunity for all of us, and hopefully we continue to grow our sport. At the University of Wisconsin, how many times were you at Camp Randall Stadium and jumped around at the end of the third quarter? <laughs> Uh, many times, um, but it's at the end of the third. I'm gonna crack you. I'm sorry, up. sorry, no, sorry. Go ahead, no, correct no, no, no. me. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but uh, you know what? It's it's a blast. That place is unbelievable, and I had a great experience there. And I love Badger football. And um, you know, hope, hopefully they continue to do well. I know they beat the uh, Purdue. Purdue, this yeah. Weekend. Yeah. So um, I still follow them. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brianna Decker of the Boston Pride. Brianna, thank you so very much for joining us. And I know the. Uh, peanut gallery eating the pretzels didn't interrupt our interview too much but uh Brian, oh oh do you want to actually uh, say a few words here oh oh, oh mouth mouths are full mouths are full uh cheeseburgers and pretzels i got gotcha. you um that's not part of your diet is no, it no it's not no 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 <laughs> salads and chicken salads and chicken and off the air we mentioned uh pizza you like pizza yeah pizza's probably my favorite food but um i can't have it very often obviously but well when you can sneak in a slice all right what type of pizza do you get or would you get um i'll get i like hawaiian pizza with pepperoncinis. oh gotcha and the next time you will have that is packers one tonight well, since the Green Bay Packers won tonight, maybe a slice after the game here. <laughs> the Packers win, the Boston Pride win, Brianna Decker, thank, and our listeners win as well. Uh, Brianna Decker, thank you so very much for joining us. Congratulations on the win. Best of luck and success to your team and your career going forward uh, this season and beyond. Thank you very much. Our sincere thanks to both Brianna Decker as well as Dr. Harriet Edwards for joining us to make episode number 23 one of the more special podcasts that we have produced um, in our two-year run doing podcasts. So uh, we have to sign off in another couple of minutes, but we want to make sure to remind you to log on to a lot of sportstalk.com. We have a lot of stories coming down the pipeline, our latest college football top 25 will be released very shortly heading into the latest week of college football will clemson be our number one team along with the college football playoff rankings that were released uh this past tuesday and also coming up on a lot of sports talk is the latest edition of the down and distance podcast our nfl podcast holly culbertson my co-host joining me talking about week 11 in the national football league So stay tuned for that. And next week, we have episode number 24 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Our feature interview is with Irma Garcia. She is one of the few women who are athletic directors on the Division I level. And also, back in 2007, when she was hired, she became the first Latina, Hispanic, to be named an athletic director on the Division I level. So that is our feature interview for next week, Irma Garcia for 
for episode number 24. We thank you so very much for tuning in for episode number 23. We hope that we made Michael Jordan and LeBron James and other number 23s proud in terms of our greatness to number 23 compared to Jordan and LeBron James. So once again, we thank you so very much for joining us and we will see you next week for episode number 24 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Thank you once again and you take care. Bye-bye.